Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 19. Four armed merchanters weren't in the plan. They just popped up on sensors, surprising us when we were zing in target coordinates just a few minutes after our own arrival. Their perfect flanking positions implied they weren't surprised. The place seemed quiet enough. No people had responded to our hails from the factory, despite jumping through automated response menus and specifically asking for human interaction. So we thought we had time. The Rimstay squawked up a storm, but it wasn't armed, wasn't the target, and didn't send off any messenger jump drones, so we ignored it. Four nearly simultaneous graviton alarms corresponding to the new defenders, however, got our attention. The odds of them rolling in at that moment, purely by chance, were pretty small. In those exact positions, impossible. We had a leak. After the news propagated out to us about the first military overture on the part of our enemies, that is, the treasonous cadre, as the good lady and her cronies were now being called, no one consulted me about names, I made a quick run out to Bancata Station, five and a half light years from the empty star system hidey hole where we'd been parked. The squadron broke up at that point anyway, with redeployments coming down like heavy rain. At Bancada, a fancy private security ship named Zemo Haziz was ready and waiting for a mission of my own hasty devising. It involved star-jumping to Polderama Star System, screaming past the space station at the jump point, and firing a brace of military-class missiles at a giant facility called Gabrochka Heavy Industries ILLC. Those two weapons carried four Hurricane Mark 7 50-kiloton tactical fusion reaction devices each in separating warheads. Eight nuclear bombs total. Dropped all in one spot, they'd be mighty impressive, but this place was nearly 70 kilometers across at its widest point, and about 220 long, taking up lots of the surface area of a small nickel-iron dwarf planet in the system. Nukes are great and all, but a facility that size could easily survive more than we'd be carrying, unless the weapons were dropped at precise points. There were a total of 17 power generator stations in the place, no two of which were closer than 10 kilometers from each other. Large-scale damage would activate an army of emergency repair bots, but against the kind of damage we'd be doing, they'd use up all of their repair materials quickly and require fast resupplies. Thousands of metric tons of electronics, cables, machinery, and more. Such quantities could only be landed at the docking centers that were located at either end of the facility, each as big as a spaceport, and like the rest of the place, entirely automated. 
We mark those as primary targets. The bots would need electricity once their internal batteries were drained or when emergency backup power for the factory was exhausted. That took a bit more thought. We couldn't neutralize all the generator stations, but much of the juice was routed through major trunk lines that could be severed at three different junctions. Making quota was of the highest priority for robot factories, so the repair bots would focus on getting the power restored in order to keep the machinery running. This meant they'd be out of energy and supplies before repairs on the primary targets could even be started, and therefore, there'd be no way to land and bring in emergency generators that were big enough to be worth the effort. No doubt they had a bunch of them down there already. No doubt they'd need much more. A true AI would see the problem with the repair priority structure and work around it. But Gabrochka was run by a bunch of dedicated artificial intelligences, or dead AIs, often pronounced dead eyes. These operated in parallel, each doing very specific tasks. Such programs were known for super efficiency in the areas of their expertise, not so much for their creative thinking. Eight bombs, one each for the docking facilities, three for the power lines. Where to put the last three? The goal here was to make the station a complete write-off. In robotic factories, labor wasn't a problem. Repairs, even those on a vast scale, could be handled without on-site human guidance. Indeed, that's how the facility had been built to begin with. But there was still a point beyond which it was no longer financially viable to maintain such a place. Specifically, when the cost of building materials was as much or more than the factory's projected net gain in the near to long term. Without doubt, Gabrochka was fully insured, but few policies covered acts of war. And even if the one for this place did, considering the probable size of the claim, the issuer would almost certainly fight it. That's just the way things worked. No payoff or a long-delayed one. Either was good news for us. If we took the place down and hurt the investment portfolio of one Baronet Aagler in a meaningful way, he'd lose the support of his family and backers. In turn, he'd have to pull out of Piani's campaign. By now, this conflict was public knowledge, even if its cause was obscured. Aagler had started to become vocal to the media about his support for his allies in this conflict, citing some made-up grievance with the Kajits. Our move this day would be an indirect attack on the good lady's ability to wage war, since our intel had indicated that at least part of the facility was being retooled to produce wartime materials. That made the whole thing a legal target. I wanted to execute a bold, oblique strike and had chosen this mission over meaningless horn-locking between ships somewhere out in deep space. The operation had begun on four-day of the previous week, real-time. Word came in during mid-shift that way over in Bul-Hi'ir star system, a cargo boat owned by a company in which the Kajit family held majority shares had been attacked and destroyed by a suspected raider. The raider had popped in from the jump point, 
and targeted the large freighter boat as it was chugging away, deeper into the well with a full load of mixed cargo boxes from a superhauler drop-off the previous day. The result was all too familiar. Seventeen crew members on the boat were lost. There were already calls for the inevitable RMA investigation into the incident, though details were scanty. The Route Management Authority was a mighty bureaucratic beast, galaxy-wide, but its functional methodology varied from nation to nation. In the Empire, spats between noble houses, which were sanctioned by the powers that be, or otherwise allowed to proceed, were largely exempt from legal blowback through RMA recommendations to local governing bodies. All it took was a lack of cooperation from the main players in such dramas on the one hand, and territorial authorities shrugging their shoulders in a, well, what do you expect us to do about it, fashion on the other, for investigations of this kind to become stillborn. That's the thing about laws. They only work when people choose to obey them. Similarly, any international investigators on scene where Dorcas of the Heather had been so badly used were likely getting far less cooperation than they usually enjoyed. Right now, they wouldn't have access to the kind of information or insight that could allow them to see past the sensor silhouette of a disguised light coaster. Or maybe they were facing a virtual mountain of red tape acting as a smokescreen. Whatever the case, I didn't envy them their job, as it was likely to take a long, frustrating time to perform, and in the end, go absolutely nowhere. Regarding this latest outrage, Vernet's solicitors immediately filed protests on behalf of its new ally with the College of Families, alleging that it was a politically motivated attack, since no pirate would intentionally destroy their plunder. The college, in turn, enqueued the complaint and promised to get to it in due course, definitely within the next five years or so. A waste of time, but that was the legal end covered. It's hardly a surprise, I stated. We'd already received and gone over reports about the attack, but the media had it now in their greedy paws and details were already getting muddy. Captain Zakorga bitterly waved away the news story that was playing ghost-like above his desk. We were on his ship, Dumorsivka. Twelve people were present for this meeting, some in person, some in pop-up hollows, calling in from elsewhere. Zakorga had gone from being my own private attempted murderer to becoming a man I respected and even liked, and this with shocking quickness. His success regarding King Yedenga had been impressive. Meetings like this proved it wasn't a singular event. He was on excellent terms with Sindra, too, and had eased into my confidence like an old friend. He was a complicated man, as it turned out, having once been part of Kajit Intelligence. Back then, he worked under someone named Gramke, who was apparently acquainted with Elmond, so that chipped away at some of the awkwardness, too. Though having moved on to the private sector with a ship of his own, Zikorga still had many contacts from his old life, and he began reaching out again. As if to change the subject, the captain brought up a brownish intelligence portfolio marked with a date from earlier in the week. He opened its seal and slipped the contents out upon his desk, gesturing for me to have a look. 
relevant information, and all of it handwritten. Though archaic and difficult to work with, paper data was impossible to purloin without hands-on. A note scrawled on a tiny yellow square drew my attention. It was in low speak, but my retinals auto-translated after a moment with English words forming underneath the script in my eye view. It stated in no uncertain terms that public information about automated shipments owned outright and or heavily invested in by the Kajits was being actively mined by Lady Trasal's planning committee. They had people studying our electronic lives, and we were doing the same in return. Such intel could be hit or miss due to the imprecision of media coverage, but this report from Zakoraga's source was interesting nonetheless, adding context. In reply, Zakoraga said, No, not a surprise. He trailed off for a moment, quietly seething, gripping a tiny, delicate cup of tea. He could, indeed, control his emotions, which was a relief. But it is powerfully provoking. Well, I imagine it's meant to be, I said. The question is, what are they hoping we'll do in response? Counter with a similar move? Bring more charges before the college? Capitulate entirely? Whatever they want, we have to appear to be giving it to them while we're doing something else. It might be better to just make a lot of noise until Colonel Jarno's squadron is ready for deployment. Once they're in the field, our military options expand. How far along are you with that, Colonel? I added, turning to the man himself. He was short and slight of build, but he had a hard set to his face that made you take him seriously. The strikers are fully serviced and ready, he acknowledged. When King Yadenga made the transfer, a team of mechanics and engineers familiar with the design came along as part of the package. I'm waiting on enough qualified pilots now. The personnel department has tracked down seven people across Allied employee pools with the correct background and training. Most of them had been shifted to cargo and passenger liner work by their various families for lack of anything better. One of the very finest fighter pilots in the entire region is currently running tourist flights out to scenic stellar objects on the other side of the territory. It's taking time to gather them all back in. The Kajit military hardware assets, and many of those from other families who might have previously been counted on for aid in a time of trial, were either stolen outright in the Omatsu defection, or are frustratingly sidelined by ill-maintenance from extended inactivity. Hu Fi Chuvage has been returned to dry dock, for God's name. Clearly, this was not a fight the old Kamo had expected, or at least it was one he expected to avoid. The Count definitely had other plans, I agreed. I'm a little concerned about the fallout from that quarter, actually. Sindra, have we gotten any reports of foreign agents sniffing around? Only the usual she replied, reaching out and waving for an electronic document in the hollow display. It slid into view from a classified directory and was dated from the day before. There is activity near a few of the ports back in Hifa system and likely some operational attention upon stations where we are gathering forces. Nothing focused yet, or so it is believed. I didn't pursue that, even though I suspected it was wrong. Or rather, that Piani's forces weren't necessarily the only ones spying on us. 
It was absurd to think Eli Marzian had packed up and gone home simply because I'd been rude. Not when things were just getting interesting. He was waiting for stuff to happen. I guess we all were. This meeting was a near-perfect repeat of several we'd had in the weeks previous, the only difference now being the attack on the cargo boat. Much of the nobles' focus, those on our side, I mean, still appeared to be upon political maneuvering, despite this thinly disguised opening strike. The enemy had done its best to isolate those cogits loyal to the Kamatosa, but the public support of the Vernays family, with all its shipping and supply operations, had apparently come as a surprise. Still, with a traitor at the top, the Kajit military had fractured right down the middle. That had a knock-on effect of cooling the umbrage of the prouder members of the extended clan, outraged over the murder of their patriarch. So much so that, in recent days, various family and corporate factions had become suddenly uncooperative, even hostile to those of us operating in the Kamatosa's name. Taken collectively, even with the old Kamo's bloodline still intact, these things might have, really should have, resulted in the patriarch position being stripped away from this branch of the family. Feodor Kajit-Vudin had concentrated a lot of power and money into one place. Was it any wonder that predators had been dogging him? Vernet's support came with a whirlwind of legal writs, motions, and petitions moving across the stars. They flew by the gross so as to delay any premature judgments or approvals by the college. Most especially the Kamatosa's extended grip on the position of interpatria had to be protected. The argument was made that, as his wife, she'd known the old Kamo's mind better than anyone else, and was now merely executing his previously expressed wishes. Sure, it was flimsy and unlikely to be supported by the college, but through submitted injunction applications and requests for stays of final assessments, the claim was legal enough that it couldn't just be ignored. Meanwhile, different avenues started to open, and other families joined the show, important nobles who had commercial interests tied up with ours. Piani had almost certainly intended to bypass military action entirely, forcing the Kajits, as a clan, into a shape she liked. The woman's goals went far beyond this conflict. She would not have wanted to become bogged down in expensive combat in space. Duca's actions had been intended to avoid such a thing. How much had she and her cronies budgeted for this part of their plans? How far into the red were they willing to go? I want to be out there, I stated to the others. The counterattack, I mean. Whatever it is. Just observing, nothing more. I thought I would get a lot of argument, especially from Sindra, but it quickly seemed like a good idea. Aside from these meetings, I didn't have any duties that others weren't already doing better. They could certainly get by without me, while it was a good idea for at least one of our little subgroup to have eyes on the opening move. We had a meeting to decide if the Circle's response should be ours to make, 
or if we should wait for our ever-honorable noble elders to choose a course. My own predilections being obvious to one and all, the consensus was the former option. Then we had a meeting to narrow down targets. There were four different automated cargo lines that seemed juicy, but a recorded and translated message from Captain Diempia, he of the medium hauler Josefina, who had saved our bacon back on Juriano Colony, and which was now returned to the Empire on its quarterly schedule, had proved most interesting. I'd asked for his input specifically because his level-headedness, family loyalty, and insight had been impressive. His words got me thinking in terms of more concrete assets. Ruin a few robot ships and people may get nervous, Famo, he said, acknowledging one of the points I'd included in my contact message. However, they won't stand about idly. The factories will continue to produce. Supply routes are not set in stone. They are routinely modified due to delays caused by politics, market pressures, fuel costs, and much more. And even if there is a delay in shipping, the goods merely get stockpiled until they can move again. At best, hitting a few of their ships would be a minor inconvenience. My opinion of the guy had been high already. After that, I put in a request to have him moved up and brought in to our meetings as an expert advisor. There were delays with that too, as Josefina was in the middle of a contracted cargo run. His plainly spoken words found an immediate home in my plans, though, and we began looking for more viable targets. Like every endeavor, ours had to fit within the confines of our means. This operation could only use a limited number of Mass Effect warheads, supplied through a subsidiary jointly owned by several families, including the Vernays. One planning session with a company rep advising upon the use of these weapons, dragged on for eternity. It wasn't until Sindra, who'd had some other commitments and arrived late, realized that the company man and I were actually enthusiastically advocating for, uh, read that arguing about, the exact same target on a list of final choices. This, owing to a crummy grasp of Inglis on his side, and a worse one of low-speak and ing-tech on mine. Neither translation software nor human interpreters picked it up, but my niece had been hearing my spacer's tone for years and saw the problem instantly. She massaged egos like a therapist, shrugging off our thanks with an agile compliment to the rep and a withering insult to me. Polderama star system ticked all the right boxes. It had a rim stay right at the jump point that acted as an important shipping depot for a massive automated factory in the system called Gabrochka Heavy Industries ILLC, or just GHI. That too was situated at the jump point for ease of freight and product transfers. The entire system was largely owned by the baronet Sir Amandaz Eagler, who may well have been one of Piani's ascending matrimonial targets. I liked GHI for this, but there were a couple of unsecured supply drop-offs elsewhere that were easy pickings, and some of the other folks kept bringing them up. Easy pickings makes them hardly worth the effort. I argued, pointing to a star system map on the hollow display for emphasis. The subject of your target proposal 
that rims stay there in Polderama's system, is it even worth the effort? They can just bring in another one without much delay. Those things are built in shipyards by the score and have jump engines installed for delivery. No, let's take out the factory. This was met with silent assessment. Escalation, then? Zakoraga asked. Out of the corner of my eye, Syndra was burning a hole in my temple with uncharacteristic laser focus. Why not? I replied, all ugly and dogged. It's coming anyway, so let's make it happen on our schedule instead of theirs. Take the offensive in Polderama, and they won't be looking closely at the other operations. I swiped the display back to the report on the striker pilots. My suggestion left them seemingly unmoved, which was suddenly quite exasperating. Excuse me, they murdered the patriarch of this family. She did. Piani Trisal. You think this can be solved through a few light taps? We know what this is about, Spacer, Syndra responded flatly. It was free of her usual venom, but it was still a reproach. Then what? Too aggressive? It won't seem that way when they catch up to the old Count's son. All-out war of the sort you advocate has been rare between families, Captain DeRay observed, her gaze serious, even disapproving. It benefits no one. Threats, assassinations, strikes on ships and boats, these happen with regularity. But attacking hard assets like settlements or large factories, it's uncommon. The Emperor and the College have curtailed, constrained, or even intervened in every ballooning interfamily conflict over the last half century. I don't see Augustine or the College sitting at this table, I observed, somewhat childishly. And anyway, we want the Emperor to weigh in, because Lady Trisal is gunning for the throne. It's all she'll be satisfied with. That is supposition, Sindra spoke and started digging for a predictive psych eval on the good lady in her data plate. That report had already been presented to the room earlier, so I preemptively waved away its reappearance. Supposition backed up by intelligence operatives from the Alliance. I know you think no one outside the Empire cares or is even watching, but believe me, they do and are. Conflict near the border worries them. She worries them. Piani Trisal is ambitious. She intends to murder and marry her way to the top. That's what this is about. I looked around and failed to meet with even one enthusiastic gaze. Look, I continued, I've met the woman, which no one else here can say. She's not going to stop of her own volition. It's my opinion that we need to make this as big and ugly as we can, as fast as we can. Yeah, that'll give Ain space to vapors, but whatever. If Lady Trisal's allies start taking heavy financial losses immediately, their faith in her vision of the future will evaporate. Such a thing could prove vital. Can we at least agree on that? But we couldn't. Not all of us. Some were seemingly swayed but it had become quite apparent by now who was looking for a few skirmishes, followed by a quick negotiated end to this thing, and who was looking to smash Lady Trisal's war machine. All those minds, yet the meeting ended on an unsatisfactory note to my ears. Later, in private, 
Sindra reiterated some of the concerns that had been brought up. We had differing views, but we were the face of the Vernays in this thing, and she would endorse my arguments. Divisiveness would only cause problems. She included the group as a whole in this statement in a warning tone, and we, at least, agreed on that. So, I made some calls. Sindra did too. Not our finest moment, maybe, from an open discourse point of view. Then again, this wasn't a democracy. Petty assignments were handed out by military commanders and ranking nobles to the more intractable people who'd been at that meeting, requiring them to be elsewhere during the next one. When that came, an all-out attack on GHI got a unanimous vote. By week's end, we were in motion. According to the plan, if there were any people in the factory, we would query first thing. They'd be given time to clear out and head to the rimstay. If they needed help clearing out, we'd send in a team. If they refused to budge, fought with us, or even threatened to, we'd leave them right there and proceed with the attack. It didn't hurt to try and look like the good guys, but it also wasn't a massive priority. Almost certainly, the Circle of Righteousness, as we were apparently calling our own organized group efforts against the cadre, like I said, I wasn't consulted, would probably be vilified for moving against our enemies on such a grand scale. But only until it was over, and we'd won. Then you wouldn't hear a peep out of anyone who mattered. We got hold of the cargo schedules for Polderama Star System. As these were all commercial flights, this information was publicly available. We spent four hectic days going over it all. We had to run to Bankata Station to take delivery of the missiles and warheads for the job. An experienced ordnance master, crack engineering teams, and that same sales rep were all coming along for the ride in order to oversee the weapons. Civilians deploying nukes was a capital offense throughout all of settled space. Legally speaking, however, nobles were a species unto themselves, considered neither inherently civilian nor military in nature, at least in the Empire. They were a class of people who could pretty much do whatever they thought they could get away with. And by they, I mean me. So there we were, in the paramilitary vessel Zemo Haziz, a model made for high-end markets, like police units and first-tier star systems, and fat-wallet corporate security forces. It was a civvy model of the Orfala class, but had features no armed merchander could match. A couple of overcranked DEWs that we wouldn't be using, and two refitted launch tubes that we would. These last had been harvested from a decommissioned military gunboat. That wasn't technically illegal, but likely wouldn't remain such after Zemo Haziz fired those two payload delivery vehicles with the Hurricane warheads. Our mission parameters had been crafted and defined on the advice of a salesman, the goals of the conflict as a whole, and the upgraded capabilities of Zemo Haziz. We took the missiles aboard, then jumped off from Bankata in secret. All of it was secret. All of it was classified. 
To keep it so, we'd registered a false flight plan describing a trip to a tiny tween star station owned by the Cogets, hardly more than a rest stop. Along with that came an addendum mentioning fictitious escort services for a commercial convoy assembling there. No one could have known where we were really going, and we were going exactly when no one who could possibly interfere would be in Polderama star system. Yet there they were, four heavily armed merchandiers, popping directly into strategic positions relative to Zemo Haziz. They fired off energy weapons the moment they pinged us. Each attack hit, but the range was pretty far for civvy DEWs. The focal points of their strikes were wide due to such distance, so all we got were some thumping concussions to the frame. They were meant as warning shots and we suddenly had to decide if we were going to take the hint. I looked at Captain DeRay, commander of the ship. They weren't in the plan, I said. You call it, she replied. This is your mission, Famo. Mine was to get you here. And get us home, I hope. Let's continue, but give me ten minutes. I will. These other ships may not. She said this to my back because I was already on the move. Heat trails, came the S-2 announcement from the chief sensor officer. They were all mic'd up on the bridge, and I could hear everything. Bogies, Beta, Gamma, Delta have launched. We have ten, check that, twelve inbounds. All are conventional, no rad warnings. Thermal profiles peg them all as low-yield civilian warheads. ETA of the closest, two minutes, fifty-five seconds, mark. Bogey Alpha? the captain asked. It appears to be shifting to a defensive vector near the rimstay. That was good news. Three ships to worry about instead of four. Low-yield civvy missiles wouldn't be much against a beefier type of vessel. In this one, though, despite its bells and whistles, they'd be the death of us after three minutes of constant acceleration. Is there time to calculate a short cross-system star jump? I asked over the line upon the command channel while walking. The gravity well is small here. Can we skirt it so we're above the factory on the other side? Yes, just. And then her voice rang out over the general PA system of the ship. All hands, stand by for emergency star jump in one, three, Z seconds. Repeat, two minutes, ten seconds until star jump. Mark. That's cutting it close, I commented over the line while clomping down a spiral staircase to a lower deck. Agreed. And worse yet, it puts us closer to the defending vessels. Depending upon how fast they can reacquire us and course correct, they may be able to arc those missiles to our new location before we can take an evasive heading. Can we do simulcalcs for another star jump right after that? Yes, but then we're delayed. The Orfala class does not have sufficient computational capacity for triple calculations. Done right, we won't need them. For the second jump, lay in a course back to Bancada. Right now, I'm heading to gunnery. It takes me about 45 seconds to get there from the central companionway of the ship. I've timed it. Please advise the officer in charge. I need to watch this from there. Understood. And she was gone, because a million things were going on, and she was responsible for all of them. I didn't run, and I didn't shuffle. I moved aft on B-deck, where gunnery was situated as if I was heading to work along the promenade of a large station 
watching the average folk go by. The lives of different people who really looked like they had it all together, whatever that meant to them. Hustle, bustle, shouting back and forth. I was here, and now, in the moments before action. Gunnery was a larger duty station than I was used to, with room for two people at the weapons and an observer behind, either a commanding officer or a trainee, depending upon the way the day was going. For this action, it was the former, and she was fuming by the time sensors registered my identity and unlocked the pressure door. It slid to the side, and my first sight of Field Officer Tian Matavir was one of tight features under two bright red braids pulled back and looped into an even tighter bun behind. Super pale skin covered in freckles, now going the color of her hair in indignation, embarrassment, and anger. Scarlet eyebrows met in the middle under a brow creased with emotion. Despite the picture of fury she presented, her voice was steady, if a bit clipped. Familia Cano de Santos, she greeted. The chair is yours, and she made to step aside. The place was roughly barrel-shaped if the barrel sat on its side. Rounded corners at the deck and overhead, with a bank of military and civilian-grade monitoring and control gear running from one end to the other along one of the flat bulkheads to either end. The two sitting there were in sliding seats upon a single track. They could glide easily along the length of the control bank to reach and touch anything needed at either duty station. A young man and young woman sat in those chairs. Kids, really, likely still in their teens. Much of this stuff appeared to require manual rather than voice activation, which would normally be a sign of outdated gear. With a setup like this one, however, where military and civilian equipment were mixed together and everything was within easy reach of one gunner or the other at all times, it likely made things easier to manage. F.O. Matavir's chair was raised up from the deck by one step, providing an easy view of everything happening. Really, it was a beautiful design. The lights were dim and at least a few comm channels were being piped to external speakers, though the volume was kept low. Not at all, F.O., you're in charge. I'll stand. There wasn't a lot of room for that, especially with her doing so herself with such ruffled feathers. I gestured for her to retake her seat, then moved in enough for the door to shut and lock behind. She went back to the chair and fastened its cross-torso safety belt. The normal uniforms of Zemo Haziz personnel were of military design, though unfamiliar to me. In and of themselves, these were light pressure suits with wide collars holding inflatable bubble helms that could be pulled over and sealed in an emergency. Each seat had flexible Atmo lines and associated controls. While gunnery had its own standby power and atmospherics, each member of this team could be breathing on their own in seconds in the event of a sudden blowout. The Hurricanes are ready for launch on the other end? We're still waiting on arrival specs from Starjump Navigation, one of the kids replied. I cursed aloud and dialed Nav myself because Gunnery should have had those numbers already. This is Familian Cano de Santos down in Gunnery, 
Where are those end jump calculations? We're a go in less than 30 seconds. Uh, right, sir. I... Pipe them down here now. Uh, of course, sir. So, so... But I cut the line. And a second later, the same kid as before announced, Got them. Loading specs and we are set. Auto vectors? The moment we clear jump space, we launch, F.O. Mattawear answered. Warhead targets for 1 through 5 are now plotted from actual sensor telems and locked, but LIDAR mapping was interrupted by the bogies. We don't have fresh coordinates for 6, 7, or 8, only architectural schematics. All hands, came the star jump navigator again, this time over shipwide comms and clear of any sputtering excuses. Emergency jump in 3, 2, 1, star jump. Down, down to the lowest depths of my gut. It was the whole universe and every choice I ever made burying themselves somewhere just above my upper intestine. Star jumps represent a singular feeling, yet they all hit you differently depending upon the ship and the engineering team and especially the fear surrounding the trip. This was a hard one, but cross-system jumps are fast, even from the subjective point of view. One, then two seconds, and the universe unfolded again from my belly. Missiles away, one of the young gunners announced. F.O., I said while swiping over a set of targeting coordinates for her personal net. If we don't hear from the bridge in the next 40 seconds, set warheads 6, 7, and 8 to these coordinates. I can't do that without... She started to argue, but I cocked my head and gave her that watch-what-you-say-next sort of look that I'd seen so many times over the years. A chafing glare that inevitably had me hopping to it, though swearing under my breath. Okay, lesson observed. She knew that look as well as I did and nodded once, tendons sharp as knife blades on her skinny, bone-white neck. She swiped at the chair arm's pop-up controls in order to set the extra targets manually. These were to abrasive power relays in the factory, as well as to a fusion plant sitting between them. If this whole section were taken down, it would badly hinder any repairs to the other sections about to be hit. Atomic 2, payload separation complete, the young girl announced calmly. Warheads on target. Atomic 1, separation complete. The young man followed. All targets acquired. Final three are 12 seconds from lock-in. But then he added, Warhead 2 is on track, but off by .03. It'll miss the target. Can you compensate? F.O. Matavir questioned. Not by hand. FAF systems keep auto-correcting to the wrong course. One side, I ordered, stepping down off the platform and elbowing the young man to the left. He said nothing and just rolled away. There were military panels on this bank of weapon controls, but I ignored those, muttering for my retinals to auto-translate the low-speak script on all the surfaces, just as they had for the written notes back in the meeting. This feature was an inarguable convenience, but could cause occasional misunderstandings or even accidents, since not everything translated properly. I could only hope that this wasn't one of those occasions. I brought up AT-Alpha-02 on the targeting status screen and froze its course while dumping the coordinates. I counted to six audibly, 
the others in the room exchanging confused and alarmed looks with each other that I could just see out the corner of my eye. Then I reloaded the same specs as before, toggled motor safeties to off so as to throttle up the warhead's main thruster to max. Coasting for a count of six had put the self-propelled warhead off the mark, but not as far as it would have been otherwise, and throttling up shortened the time it had to drift off course again. Among professional gunners, such an attack was considered romantic, big, dramatic, and exceedingly prone to miscalculation and failure. I didn't love it myself, but there was a time and place for everything. Twenty clicks above its power junction, the warhead became a growing mini-star, racing down at whatever speed 47 Gs of acceleration had given it. The impact between a fast-moving ball of nuclear fire with the surface of the facility was impressive, blinding live feeds and even blanketing sensors for nearly two solid seconds. Yeah, not quite a bullseye, but close enough. Whoa, the young man I'd pushed aside expostulated, watching light and rock and metal rise from the factory like a boil when visuals popped back up. I just raised hands and returned to my spot next to the F.O., muttering to her, Sorry, had to be done. Gunnery's yours. Alert! Alert! Incoming! Take hold in 20! Came an announcement over the P.A. and shipwide channels alike. It was still too soon for the civvy ships to have turned their missiles around and gotten them to us along our new vector and no predictive assessment could have possibly given the crew an accurate takehold warning against energy weapons. Since the bridge saw it coming, this had to be automatic defensive fire from the factory. Repurposed anti-rock plasma lances, meant to bust up large asteroids that might impact the expensive facility. The ship's gross motion sensors would have picked up the gun batteries as they rolled into position on maglevs and lined up to take the shot. The 20 count had been an estimate of how long it would take for that to happen. Remaining warheads on target, the young woman at the long bank said. Hoods up, the gunnery officer announced evenly, no sign of tension in her words, even as she pulled out a small tube from the arm of her chair and fitted it to the socket in one shoulder. The other two were doing the same, nearly in synchronized precision. F.O. Matavir then tugged on the release string for her collar. A clear envelope of flexible plastic came free, thin as food-grade plastic wrap, but much tougher and more specialized. She pulled it over her head, sealing it along the neckline. The air being released inside was at just slightly more than ship ambient pressurization, so the hood slowly inflated. In moments, all three were fairies from some Victorian tale of summer adventure, wearing soap bubbles over their heads. The fey creatures removed matching gloves from the cuffs of their sleeves. These were of a thin, flexible, and insulating material, rubber-like and stretchy, that slipped on with squeaky precision, adhering to sealant strips at their wrists. Sorry, the field officer spoke as she glanced at me her green eyes sparkling under the plastic from the reflected lights of the consoles. She raised her brows in a tiny gesture toward the helmet. 
I didn't think to put one on, I confessed, feeling sheepish. Rookie mistake. It's been a busy day, she offered, no trace of the earlier annoyance in her voice. I was about to reply with something silly and facetious when our twenty seconds were up. The noise seemed to lift me off my feet, and I had the strange impression of passing by a limp, red-haired rag doll sitting upside down who was being tossed over to one side of her chair, emerald points seeming to follow my progress across the length of gunnery and into an upper corner. Except this room had no corners, and I impacted one of its curves with my left shoulder. I felt the clavicle crack, but couldn't hear it over the impact, and didn't even feel the pain, not while I was still in motion, because the ship had changed course, thrusters working in concert with main drives to roll us off from the factory's plasma lance strike that I, for one, had not expected to be this impressive. Our vector shift made the hit a glancing one, running screw-like from stem to stern as we made our course translation instead of side-on where it might have sheared off the bow. Steady beams of sun-hot plasma melting the polinium outer hull of Zemo Haziz like candle wax tracked our movement as we zigged and zagged and bounced through vacuum like a metal moth. All this was happening of an instant. I hadn't even fallen to the deck before that deck shifted under me, and I flew at another rounded corner that wasn't. But my stomach lurched then, the universe pouring deeply in. Time stopped as we star-jumped away, far away, back to wherever we'd come from. Where was that again? Jeez, the final warheads hadn't even impacted yet, I sure hope they hit. Then time remembered about the fat idiot hanging in the air, and I hit that other bulkhead harder than the first, at the part where it curved up to the overhead. I hit, then slid down as the G's eased off, and just lay there, in the curve from deck to bulkhead, on my face. There was still no pain. That couldn't last. All hands, sound off, came the call from the bridge. Reply, the F.O. ordered one of the others. Do not ID the FAMO over that channel. And then the young woman at the bank of instruments spoke quietly to someone. Medico to gunnery, ASAP, the field officer then called over an emergency line. My own rig wasn't dialed in to that frequency, so I only heard the conversation from her end. She paused after the declaration, then said, Unsecured personnel, multiple impacts. Then a hand was at the side of my neck, feeling for a pulse. Oh, I'm still around, I whimpered. He's conscious, she said to the unseen emergency coordinator. No further casualties here. Then to the other specialist, Open that door, Kata. Yes, ma'am, I heard. My shoulder was starting to throb, just a bit. I couldn't move, but I didn't want to. My back felt tight and throbbing, and dull like a drum filled with sand. I was breathing, yet couldn't feel myself doing so. A pair of feet in military-issue soft shoes were right in front of my face. Don't kick me, I whispered hoarsely, because at that moment it seemed like a serious possibility. 
Then there were other voices and other feet and other hands at my neck and back and legs. They strapped on braces and an immobility board. I never quite blacked out, but never quite made sense of anything either. I remember screaming once when they lifted me onto an akame, but I can't say if it was pain, fear, or general annoyance at being moved from such a comfortable stretch of floor, wall, whatever. I was on my back then, floating, just floating through the companionways. I was on a cloud, soft and cottony. Oh, when had I gotten pain meds? <laughs> Bright lights on the overhead slid by, one after another, and they made me blink. Voices were all around, ahead, beside, and behind, yammering, quacking, barking. It was a barnyard. I remember really wishing they'd shut up and let me enjoy the ride. Because I was weightless now, like a starman ought to be, floating aimlessly, yet moving, always moving. Something else moved, too, a blur, all red and freckled. It frowned. Or was it upside down again and actually smiling for once? Mission accomplished, Fama, she reported, then slid out of view as someone wearing white stopped her at the large hatch to sickbay. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Malov and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care. <laughs>